are listening to a sermon podcast from St. Benedict's Table, a congregation of the Anglican Church of Canada located in Winnipeg, Manitoba. May only truth be spoken and only truth received. Amen. From last week's proclamation of Paul's great reflection on love, on agape, in 1 Corinthians 13, We've now skipped right past chapter 14 and landed in the opening section of the 15th chapter. It's probably worth noting that the skipped chapter is a continuation of Paul's theme of agape and how he understands that as the key in foundationally reshaping the character of the divided Corinthian church. Here, in chapter 15, he begins to take another tack. His emphasis is now on the resurrection of Christ. This is the message that I proclaim to you, he writes to them, which you in turn received, in which you also stand, through which also you are being saved. And that message would be that Christ was raised on the third day in accordance with the Scripture. But why exactly is Paul going back over that kind of foundational material at this point? Because, he says, some of you say there is no resurrection of the dead. Some of the Corinthian Christians had determined that they would follow the teachings of Jesus there their wise and good and challenging teachings. And in that way, through his memory, he would continue to live on with them. But that the whole idea of the resurrection was, well, just a little distasteful to their pre-Christian sensibilities. See, Corinth is a Gentile city filled with people shaped in an array of religious beliefs most of which would have seen the physical stuff of the world as being debased or secondary to the spiritual. But Paul, Paul is a Jew at heart, and he holds fast to both a deep respect for the embodied, for our body selves, and to a belief in resurrection as God's promised future for the world. Where Paul departs from conventional Judaism, where the whole Christian movement departs, is in saying that Jesus of Nazareth was resurrected, not in the fullness of time, not at the end of time, but already in time. Not that it was easy for Paul to get to that point, For as he himself notes, quote, I persecuted the church of God. As detailed in the book of Acts, Paul was notorious for valiantly defending the Judaism as it was held and contained by the Pharisaic movement of which he was a part, relentlessly persecuting the Christian movement as a dangerous aberration. Yet, there's this story as he goes along the road to Damascus that he's knocked to the ground and ultimately totally reoriented 
in his thinking and his believing. The risen Christ, he says, quote, appeared to Cephas, that's Peter, then to the twelve, then to more than 500 brothers and sisters at one time, most still alive, though some have died. Then he appeared to James, then to all the apostles, and last of all, as to someone untimely born, he also appeared to me. For I am the least of the apostles, unfit to be called an apostle, because I persecuted the church of God. But by the grace of God I am what I am, and his grace toward me has not been in vain. Now if you read the account in Acts of Paul's conversion, or maybe it's not even a conversion, maybe it's his new orientation because he never not believed in God. If you read that account, you'll see that it shook him right to the core and also rather undid and troubled the Christians he'd formerly been persecuting. What, he's one of us now? Uh, Can we trust this guy? That point of being utterly turned around, upside down, inside out, is followed by a three-year period in Arabia where he studied from roughly 33 to 36 A.D. Suggests that it takes Paul some time to get his mind and his heart and his soul adapted to this new reality. After that, he's back to Damascus and he begins preaching, Jesus is Messiah. But his epistles don't begin to be written until sometime around the year 50 A.D., So, 15 years or so after his new call? There is, in other words, lots of time needed to sort out the deeper meaning of that dramatic experience of the risen Christ on the road to Damascus. It is surely dramatic, and it takes time. I think that provides an interesting point of connection to this evening's gospel reading taken from quite early in Luke's story. This is, of course, the famous story of the calling of Simon Peter, told here in Luke with more detail and character than in any of the other gospel accounts. Jesus is at the shore of the Lake of Gennesaret, also known as the Sea of Galilee. Crowd is pushing in upon him to hear what he has to say. There on the shore are some fishermen cleaning their nets after a night out on the lake. And so Jesus gets one of them, Simon, to put out one of the boats into the water so he can have a place from which to teach this crowd. When he's finished teaching, he tells Simon to, quote, put out into deep water, let down your nets for a catch which strikes the experienced fisherman as a rather poor idea, as the likelihood of any sort of catch in the morning is rather thin, and they fished through the night with no luck at all. Yet if you say so, Peter remarks, I will let down the nets. Well, you heard how it works, right? Soon enough, those nets are bursting at the seams, which is such a rich image of the abundance of Christ represented in the world. 
But dear old Simon Peter, he's just overwhelmed. He's at least as overwhelmed as Paul had been on the Damascus road. Quote, but Simon Peter, when he saw it, he fell down at Jesus' knees, saying, Go away from me, Lord, for I am a sinful man. Now, prior to this, in his discussion with Jesus about putting the boat out, Simon had used the word epistata in addressing Jesus, which our version translates as master, master. But now he switched his language and he grabs hold of the word kyrie. That's a higher title. That means Lord. As Luke presents it, though it is a word that falls from Simon's lips out of deep fear, as in, oh Lord, please leave me. Just leave me here. My life is a mess. I can't have anything to do with someone like you. Just leave me, Lord. Then Jesus said to Simon, do not be afraid, which is literally translated as stop being afraid, which I think really catches the spirit of both Simon's fear and of the depths of Jesus' call to him. Stop being afraid. For from now on, you will be fishing for people. And sure enough, Simon Peter, along with James and John, pull their boats ashore and set out on the road with this new teacher. But you know, this is just the beginning for Simon and James and John. Just as Paul's dramatic experience on the Damascus road had been just the beginning for him. In Paul's case, it takes those three years in Arabia to learn and pray and get his head and heart settled around this new vision into which he'd been called. In the case of Simon Peter, he's out on the road pretty much immediately. He follows, walking in the very presence of Jesus. Yet, as the Gospels unfold, how often does he miss the point, get things wrong, lose heart, and in the end, even deny knowing Jesus. Then there's James and John called at the same time in this story, and they too will manage some magnificent fumbles along the way, as will all of the disciples. The call, you see, is just the beginning. There can be terrific clarity to that experience of being called or converted or drawn into new life with Christ, after which there can be a whole lot of fumbling around, trying to figure out which way is up and what it actually means to follow this Jesus. That's just true. Now, I've told the story before of my own sense of being called into ordained ministry, but it bears being repeated here in a short form. It was over the course of about six months in my undergraduate days, and I had ten different people tell me in different ways or ask me, have you ever thought about ordained ministry? It's very different people, too, ranging from this kind of crazy kid I was working with who was in a group home, to this lovely elderly lady here at All Saints Church, to a fellow student in one of my classes at the university. Ten different voices, and it all culminated 
in a conversation with the Roman Catholic priest at the Manitoba Youth Centre. We were talking about some new program opportunities, not about my calling. And he suddenly said, how is it that the Spirit of God speaks to people in these days? Sometimes as many as ten different people will all be pointing us in the same direction, and we're resistant to what they're saying, he said to me. Ten different people, all giving the same message. I believe that's one of the ways that the Spirit of God speaks to us in our day. Well, I was struck rather mute at that moment. And then we continued talking about this youth program. But when I arrived home, I got on the phone and I called my parish priest here at All Saints, who said simply, Ah, oh, I wondered when you were going to call to have this conversation. Within a week or so, I was sitting in the office of the bishop as he plotted out the college where I should go to pursue my theological studies. It was that fast. And then all those voices stopped. There had been ten of them over six months, and then Father Pinay at the youth center with his extraordinary off-the-cuff comment about a paying attention to those voices, followed by an absolute roaring silence. Well, it was a year or two later that I told this story at a table in the cafe at Trinity College, where I was then studying for ministry. Told it to a group of students, and this doctoral student pushed back from the table, and he smiled a bit, and he said, Don't ever lose sight of those experiences, Jamie. They may be the only crystal clear ones you get. And he was right. I mean, there have been a good many affirmations along the way and a pretty clear sense that I am where I am supposed to be, but nothing like what happened over those six months. Nothing. So I think of Paul, knocked flat in the presence of the risen Christ. And I think of Peter trembling at the shore at the very thought that Jesus was Kyrie, Lord, and wanted him to follow. I think of Jesus' calm insistence that they just follow him, and of all they had to learn as they stumbled along the way. And I am consoled and heartened and encouraged and delighted to be on this way, right alongside both of them, and right alongside all of you, doing our best to stumble along in following Jesus. It was their calling, and it's ours to follow the great Good Shepherd on the way. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. This has been a sermon podcast from St. Benedict's Table. For information on our church and to access the full catalog of our podcasts going all the way back to 2006, visit us online at stbenedictstable.ca. In addition, if you are interested in supporting our online work, you can find information on the website using the Donate button located on the top right-hand corner. Thanks for listening.